0: Kyoto, ora koutou, uh, ko Stephanie Gibson, Aho. Thank you very much for that beautiful welcome and thank you for letting us come speak to you all today. It's a great privilege. Um, we're very excited to bring our book. Um, it's a very material object, so um, we'll pass it around later because uh, this doesn't do justice to it at all. These are very flat images, this book is very tactile. Um, we also would like to thank, particularly, Alexander Turnbull Library for all the material that's actually in the book. It's very nice to be here. Um, the book project started about 2012. Tabapa Press uh, came to us and said, Let's do a book about the material and visual culture of protest in Aotearoa. It's timely, it's time for a book on this topic. So, it's not a history of protest. It's a book about the material culture of protest, the material and visual strategies that New Zealanders have used to fight their cause, either out in the street or in hidden spaces. So it traverses a lot of different types of strategies, a lot of different types of material, but it's not a comprehensive history of protest. So I just wanted to lay that scene. so we're going to just just go through just a few slides from the book, just some of the highlights. Um, but there's only a tiny fraction of what the book traverses. So there are missing voices. We totally acknowledge that. Um, but this is the beginning of a project, not the be-all and end-all. And also I just want to do a big shout-out to Te Papa Press because they made it all happen. They really believed in this project and they believed in the look and feel of the project and this has come from Te Papa Press and this is why it's been honoured on the shortlist. So thank you very much, Claire and Estelle and Nicola Leggett. So just to give you a, th- a feeling for the overview of the book, uh, we brought in uh, Dr. Kerry Taylor from Massey University, who taught protests for many years at Massey University, and uh, he helped us shape the structure of the book, and this is a structure that we came up with, and These topics, uh, they've been chosen because they yielded very rich material culture throughout collections in New Zealand. And Kerry and I started travelling and then um, Pua and Matariki came on board and we also kept travelling around the country to see both public and private collections to find where were the rich nodes of material culture. So there are some quite rich, deep dives in the book where the material was very strong, for example, the Springbok tour. Um, and also we tried in vain to find material for certain protests that we just we just actually couldn't materialise at all. So they're absent in the book. But I shall now hand over to my co-speakers. Kia ora um, So I'm Matariki
1: in this poor way. Uh, what we're gonna do today is just run through each of the uh, chapters and we've pulled out uh, three or four objects or taonga um, related to each of the chapters. So the book starts with a chapter titled Collisions. Uh, It was originally titled um, War, 18th Century, and between us we decided that we needed a a bit more of a political bent to that, um, bearing in mind that we were in the writing and publication phase last year, which itself had a lot of, um, there was a lot of kind of politicization because of the Tuia 250 uh, commemorations that were going on last year. So one of the reasons why we changed the word to collisions is because we wanted to disrupt this idea of encounter and kind of peaceful relations between Māori and Europeans as um, Aotearoa was, uh, settled and colonised by um, non Māori. And then I guess one of the biggest kind of like affirmations of the use of that word came last year with some of the um, commemorative uh, events that took place on the East Coast and the use of the word collisions rather than encounter deliberate use of the words collisions rather than encounter by uh, East Coast Iwi. So this is how we started the book, and I'll let Pua Wai explain why it was that she wanted the book to start in this in this time period.
2: Uh, kia ora tātou. Uh, ko Pua Wai, Ken Stolko ingoa, nō no ngā iwi o Tauranga Moana, Ngāi Te Rangi, Ngāti Rangi, Ngāti Pūkinga. um te mihi atu te mana whenua. Uh, ki, o and ki no um, Yeah, so Pua Wai worked, at, worked in the museum for probably too long. Um, I'm very grateful to Steph for um, inviting myself and Matariki onto this project. So before I, Steph has been doing this work for a very long time, Um, the work that she's collected, she called tiny activism. And I like to call her the tiny activist within Te Papa because she's the one who's been actively grabbing these things and literally collecting them from protests and with protesters to make sure that Te Papa remembered this um, such important work um, by protesters. And it was because of what she laid down, I was able to do my own collecting when I first joined the Mata Ranga Māori team, um, starting to look for expressions of Māori protest. And I was able to do that because of the work that Steph had put in place. Um, yeah, so opening up a place for Matariki and I to make sure that Māori voices were heard in this book um, was Steph. She pushed us and pushed the project to make sure we were there. So, ho mai te paki paki, mo Steph. She's one of the heroes of Te Papa, and I don't think enough people know about what she does. Um, So when we were starting to map out this book, um, because I'm never short of an opinion, I thought one of the things about looking at Māori forms of protest or expressions of protest was to make sure that people didn't think that it just emerged with the rise of um, uh, Ngā Tamatoa that it didn't just pop up out of nowhere in the 70s because some angry Māori went to university and decided the world was not set up for them. When in actual fact, when you look at the trajectory and the the roots of 20th century Māori protest, they are firmly embedded in the heat of colonisation from the 19th century. One of the things that we didn't look at, which I'd love to look at, is actually expressions of protest within te ao Māori. So remove the colonial aspect of it and understand what protest looks like between and among Māori communities. Um, and I think you get that in like your tau uh, Para and your pātire and all of your moteatea, they're there. But um, we decided to put the stake in with colonisation. So we started with um, started the book here. Um, it's a bit scary because you're starting to deal with histories and material that have become tapu over time. One of the, my ideas in the beginning, which I didn't end up pursuing, was to put the Haukitudunga in this part of the book, as the ultimate material object and also protest site. Um, but I didn't. I felt in the end it's not my story to tell. It's Rongo have worked really hard to bring back the story of Te Tudanga Tūranga within their own, uh, bring it back to their own mana. So there's a lot of things that could have gone in here, but you have to be very conscious of whose stories you're telling. So this is my favourite, favourite object in the whole of Te Papa. Um, when I first became a curator and I first got my swipe card to go into, when the, the collection doors finally opened up, in 2011, we're like, la la! And I got to walk in there by myself. Oh man, it was such a buzz. And I immediately went back to the back wall, right at the back of Tiahuru Mowai, which is the names of one of our collection stores. And up on the, gra- um, the grill, like a big um, steel wall, is this suspended up above our heads. Now I had been working in Te Papa for a few years before I was made a curator, and i had always pondered, what the heck is that? It's a weird looking thing. Um, And this was my chance to use my mana as a curator and get close to it. And so I researched it for probably the first year of my curatorial career, um, and established it was one of the only examples of a Mārire new. So paimārire was a religious movement that emerged out of Taranaki, under Tiwa Homene, the key prophet, came around about 1864, 1865, I believe. Yeah, I can see there lots of historians in there. You can prompt you can tell me if my numbers are bad. But um, um Tiwaumini created this, um, this Hahi, this religious movement after a vision, very similar to how a number of the different Hahi Maori emerged. And the key worship icon was the new, which would be erected in the middle of the pa and resemble almost like a signal post, a naval signal post or a flagpole and became a way to like a lightning rod to divine down those atua or those divine presences that you wanted to talk to. So it was kind of using um, uh, wairua Maori beliefs mixed up with Old Testament beliefs, which you would then you know, call syncretic, a syncretic belief, a syncretic religion. And we found out through that research that this was actually a new, that had been purchased by Thomas Dunn. So a lot of you probably know who he is. He, um, used to be, he used to be like a key figure in New Zealand government in the 19th century and ended up leaving New Zealand to become, I think, our tourism commissioner or something, our commissioner in London. And he fancied himself as a bit of a collector um, because, you know, that was your status. You, you collect all those um, fancy ethnic objects. He collected this from Galatea. Galatea was a site where Gilbert Mead Jr. had established his fort, Fort Galatea, in order to invade the Uruera, the Uruera people, because they had taken up... Um, some of some of their pa had taken up the practice of paimārire. So I think this is actually... We don't know too much about the story before Dunn purchased it, but I think it actually potentially came from the two boys people, was taken as a trophy and left in Galatea and then done purchased it. We aren't able to find out that. I've had a couple of carvers try and go over the um, new, this cross tree, which was the vertical part, um, no vertical, horizontal part of the flagpole. Uh, covered in kokowai, so covered in an ochre red paint, because the Paimārere also believed that they wanted to go back to the whenua. Paimārere was about trying to regain control of the whenua in the face of this colonial encroachment and threat. So they used kokowai rather than the paint which was available and actually made a a deliberate decision to only use kokowai. And the other thing too about its recovery – is that when you go back and you read some of the accounts of Pai Marire and the invasions of their pa, it was um, the soldiers would go in there and the first thing they would do would be to cut down the new and burn it. It's a way of, um, what would you say, emasculating the people, uh, making them submit by taking down that icon. And so the bravery of these various pa to erect a new as a sign of defiance, as a sign of where they stood politically and culturally. is such a massive statement. And now what is really fascinating is that through the work of people like um, Brett Graham, you're beginning to see the new come back on the landscape. And so around about three years ago, Brett Graham from Tainui has, um, he used um, the transport people, LTSA or whatever they're called, um, when they're building their highway, use their money to put up a a great new on the side of the Cambridge to Hamilton Highway. So this sign of rebellion and resistance is starting to re-emerge on the landscape, which is why I think this is such a critical, beautiful piece.
1: That actually relates really nicely to the inclusion of artworks, contemporary artworks that we... Um, included into the book. So, one depicted here is by the parihaka uh, artist Nahino Hōhāia, who has used a lot of works that reference the history of parihaka. Uh, This one in particular is made out of 170 metres of galvanised steel chain. It's called Te o Te Korona, Why I Won't Stand for the National Anthem, um, talking about the heaviness this, this cloak of heaviness that um, was lain upon her people. Uh, I think most people here will know about the history of Parihaka and the way in which it was raised to the ground by colonial forces, the effect that had on the women of the Parihaka settlement. Um, so Nahina also uses poi in a lot of her work because poi were so... Are so important to the people of Parihaka and the passing on of uh, histories and the keeping the beat of stories. So she uses poi within some of her moving image works, um, making them out of blankets, you know, referencing the sale of our land or the taking of our land um, in very kind of spurious ways. So there's one of the things that happens in the book is these really serendipitous kind of arrangements. So here we have her work uh, depicted or presented alongside uh, a couple of poi that Pua way acquired f- as part of the uh, International Women's Day marches that took place around the world, um, one of which uh, – this one in particular taking place in Wellington, featuring Mata Hooker, who is – originally from Tauranga Moana, yeah. yes, but um, has married into parihaka and was teaching women at, as part of these the protest events that took place how to make poi and teaching songs and um, continuing this line of resistance and this history of resistance in very Māori and very, in this instance, specifically parihaka ways. Um, one of the interesting things about these poi as well is that they're the first... Plastic or synthetic uh, poi to make it into the te Papa collection. Um, so six of them were acquired, and you can see that they're quite—I don't mean to be stink—but they're you know rudimentary, like compared to what our Mātatini superstars might use. Um, so, like Paulway also referenced, um, we included texts in the. Uh, book. So one of the ideas that came from our publisher Nicola Leggett was that texts themselves can be objects of resistance, persistence, defiance. So for each chapter we have at least one piece of text. Uh, because of the time period we really did want a waiata tūturu, a waiata motetea, um but we unable to find something that in the time period uh, that fit what we were wanting to do um, that we would, could get permission for as well because a lot of these waiata are very, you know, closely held by our iwi and hapu and whānau Māori. So one of the ways we decided to almost um, subvert that idea is by including the lyrics from a, uh, a song by Alien Weaponry, a Te Reo Māori heavy metal band, who um, in this in this song, in particular, it's reference many, many different um, aspects of the histories of colonisation, and they were so stoked to be in the in the um, in the book. And actually, I think their film, a film, one of their music videos, is currently on display in Pukana.
2: So we're playing with time a lot. eh? You can tell we're trying to break up the sense of chronology. We might start in a time point with the 19th century, but we're trying to fold things back on themselves to make sure that we're not following a very basic lessons kind of way of telling the story. One, because it made it really difficult to... um, things don't line up nicely as historians and I think about 99% of you are um, we know that things don't line up nicely so you have to find tricky ways to bend them back on themselves Um, yeah that yeah yeah okay I
0: like that uh, the next uh, chapter is mainly about uh, experiences of uh, protest against war during the 20th century, mainly the First and Second World Wars, but we also do quite a deep dive into the Vietnam War protest movement. Uh, a lot of the uh, activism against the First World War, of course, is very hidden and suppressed, and um, it's very hard to find evidence. Uh, these are Two lovely examples. The one on the left is from New Zealand Archives. Um, It's a handmade, one-off poster sent in to the government to uh, protest against the conscription of boys and young men. And that's about 1912. And the one on the right is one of my favourite protest objects that I saw in my research. It's held here at Turnbull. It's a tiny, tiny little notebook by Rose Atkinson who went to the trials of um, young men who had resisted compulsory military training on the eve of the First World War. Yeah. So it's a beautiful little book. It's, um, she bears witness to their sufferings, to their sentencing, and she supported them, and she kept a note of everything that happened, little newspaper cuttings. So it's very tiny, Uh, not many people would have seen it, but it was an opportunity to bring it to a wider audience through our book. So here's another
1: artwork. Uh, This one is by Rita Angus, and it's titled The Apple Pickers, and depicts a very kind of um, pastoral, peaceful scene. Uh, So Angus herself uh, was a pacifist and um, spent some time at the Riverside, Riverside community, or Riverside Farm. Done in the South Island. Um, I re- really like this work just because it's beautiful to look at, but it's also unusual in, in that it's got a level of complexity that Angus doesn't really, um, she doesn't really paint so many figures. And that could be a reason why this itself is unfinished. Uh, but I think it also has a very peaceful depiction of a peaceful way of resisting uh, conscription and you know, the mechanisms of war as well.
0: One of my favourite research areas was the Vietnam War period, very rich material culture held in public institutions throughout New Zealand. Um, Some really large-scale pieces which have been saved. I particularly love the handmade. So on the left here we've got a wonderful piece from um, the Hocken and on the right is a wonderful handmade flag from our collections. And they were both made for a very precise moment in time by the visit of, is it Kai or Ki? Air, Air Vice-Marshal Key, who came in 1967, and uh, he was met with protests wherever he went. And I like the fact that the activists went to quite a lot of trouble to make their own um, material culture, and uh, the one lovely one on the right by Jeremy Lowe, somebody explained to him over the telephone what the colours were of the Viet Cong flag, and um So he only knew by word what colours to use to make his flag. And I like that sort of, I like to surface those stories. They're very personal, very humble, but they show you, give you an insight into the hard work of um, strategising to get onto the streets with your message. Also hidden in the archives, uh, and we had to get police permission to release these types of objects. These are sabotaged. compulsory military um, training registration forms in the early 1970s when young men were still having to undergo compulsory military training and uh, the organisation to help military service were very active, particularly on university campuses, and encouraged young men to burn their cards, sabotage them, send them back in to make their point. And what I love about this is people pushing back against state power, state intervention in their lives, but the state collects it all and keeps it. The state doesn't destroy it. And I really love the fact that all this evidence is kept and we are allowed to share it. You know, it was a, a straightforward process to release these into the book. Another really rich area of material culture is the anti-nuclear movement. Um, incredibly rich holdings throughout New Zealand. It's very hard to make a selection actually. But we wanted to show the range of material, co- material culture responses and these are, uh, they're a pair of underpants worn by Mark Roach, a great local activist who some of you may know. And uh, I like them because they're actually, they're actually made by jockey and sold at farmers, but they're anti-French. They're quite outrageous, really, when you think about it. Um, so either made in response to the bombing of the Rainbow Warrior or to um, the continued testing in the Pacific by the French. Not entirely sure exactly when they were actually sold in the mid-80s. So that's a surprise to a lot of people. And then of course ubiquitous material culture that everybody keeps hidden away in their drawers. Uh, uh, The badges and protest badges for just about any cause have been made over time and I love this type of tiny activism because it distills uh, a cause to its very, very essence and it It gives people a chance to participate and self-declare and identify through a relatively non-threatening piece of material culture that they can carry through their everyday life, like a little billboard. And I just think they're a wonderful way to document New Zealand history. And at the other end of the scale... um, we were very lucky to collect La Bombe by Lisa McEwen. So she created this for the Benson & Hitch's Fashion Awards in 1988 and it was her anti-nuclear statement. The And it was really well received. It didn't win an award, but it was highly commended. And it's a beautiful fashion evocation of a very serious issue. And it's a really special piece of fashion protest. And it's also a huge, you know, it's um, a very a big honour for Te Papa to be able to be kaitiaki for it but it also, it's a big deal to look after. We actually have to um, keep it permanently on a mannequin in a crate, a purpose-built crate, so it's actually a huge commitment to look after this type of material culture. But it's really important that we save all forms of activism for the record.
2: Again, when we're devising putting together the book, we didn't want to put um, Māori stuff just in one chapter because, you know, everybody's over that now, over that approach, at least I hope so. So we tried to make sure that uh, Kaupapa Māori was right throughout, as often as we could, right throughout all of the chapters, but still felt the requirement to retain one chapter that was looking at some of the um, expressions of Māori protest uh, outside other protest realms. So we decided to call this chapter Manamotuhake, um, which is around that statement and declaration of independence, of sovereignty, which some people we also call Tino-Rangatiratanga, but I wanted to go with Manamotuhake. So we got a number of different objects, which again transverse lots of different time periods. Um, and the first object is Matarikis. I love this taonga. So
1: this is a po. That was erected, one of four that were erected around the Whanganui area uh, by a man called Tekepa Te, Kepa Te Rangi So he was um, baptised Major Kemp, and he fought alongside some of the colonial forces in that e- area um, because he was baptised Christian and Paimarire. Uh, had quite a stronghold in the area. And so there were a lot of battles that took place between um, colonial forces against the the progression of uh, Pai Mārire. But what started happening was that land started being uh, confiscated from local Māori. And, f- well, the way I read it is that Te Keapa didn't think it would actually encroach upon his whenua as well. But it became clear that it was getting closer and closer to the whenua that he was from. So to uh, try and protect his land, he erected... He used a very uh, Māori tikanga of erecting po to market, demarcate uh, his, his people's mana over the whenua. Unfortunately, it didn't stop the confiscation. Um, they The land was still taken from them and the po themselves still remain... Well, um, at least one of them I know of remains. And elsewhere in the book, we also include the Pofenua that was carved for uh, the Māori Land March, the 1975 Māori Land March, which will never touch the land, uh, the ground until all Māori landers uh, returned. So there's some really nice, uh, again, synchronicities between different taonga that are featured in the book. And so this is one of them.
2: Um, and these are the dresses of Whae Eva Ricard, um, Tuiwa Ricard. Um, we were really lucky to be given the opportunity to look at her kākahu, so we went, traveled to Raglan. Um, I traveled up there with National Services Te Pairangi with our colleagues Paula Tibble and uh, Mikotoiria, uh, and Vicky and Heiko, if she's around. Um, so while they were doing a wānanga uh, with the people in Raglan, Uh, Angelina and I sat down and talked about her mother and her mother's dresses. So I think Tuiwa or Eva was always going to be in the book. It was just in what form. Um, And we were trying to put things in here again, preoccupied by the notion of material culture, but also trying to tell stories that hadn't been told before. So the angle that we took with uh, Whaya Eva was looking at her panikoti, at her um, dresses which are still held by the family. So Angeline, her daughter, Angeline Greensill, who some of you might know, she brought out these enormous bags and then pulled out all these amazing dresses. And I don't know if I grew up as a child in the eighties, some of my Farno married into the Rickard Farno, and uh, Tuiwa was always one of those larger than life iconic legendary figures. Um, I remember once running into her when I was a university student, when I was camping in Raglan and being like starstruck in a shop and I couldn't move. And I could see her at the, at the counter buying something at this antique store and I just like I really wanna say hello to you but I don't feel like I don't have the money to say hello. She was intensely awesome. And so I, it's difficult to describe what it was like to actually have a tactile, be able to touch her dresses it's like being able to touch the kakahu and my mahi of all of these different rangatira. I was touching something that was that she made, that she wore, but most importantly for this book, that symbolised something that was she was codifying what she was wearing to tell people how she was feeling, how she was responding. So they became part of her um, protest codex, so to speak. It became part of how she was actually telling stories to the world. And for instance. She was uh, apparently t- notorious for her dislike of the Waikato-Tainui um, adherence for women wearing black. So if you go for anything ritual in Tūranga Waiwai, chances are all of those quick, beautiful women, are all going to be dressed in black. And she didn't like it. She she wanted to resist. What is really interesting, I don't know if there's Waikato-Tainui people in here, Oh, is the, the notion of the, there are lots of different pockets of resistance even within the Waikato to um, greater Waikato tikanga Kingitanga tikanga So that was actually a really interesting thing to understand with Eva is that she was known for not wearing black at Turanga Waiwai and the one time she wore black she wore that dress there when Queen Elizabeth came to Turanga Waiwai because she wanted to really make a statement that you're here. I'm grieving. This is a tangi. This is not a happy occasion. I will not wear colour. Um, and, and so, the, and the other thing is that when no uh, uh, Nelson Mandela, sorry. When Nelson Mandela also went to Turanga Waiwai, again, to challenge what all the kui we were doing, she decided she would wear rainbow colours to honour him. So she wore bright. So, and that these are only, what, four or five of the selection, there were dresses. There are so many dresses there, and the fana were so generous with us. We were always worried about when we we're doing this part that people would might think that we were kind of a kind of trying to fuck a her, you know, by concentrating on her kakahu, and you know, it's so sort of cliche feminine. Look at the woman. Look at her dresses, but. Uh, on the other hand, for us, it was about telling stories and telling her, talking about some of the strategies that she had where she was using her power as a wahine. Um, so, yeah, that's why we're quite proud of these um, and hoping one day the family will let us collect them. But kai a yeah. a uh,
1: So here we have, on the left, an example of... one of the few examples in the book where humour... Is, is deployed as well. So, this is a blanket that was presented by Kurul uh, Tameisi at one of the Waitangi tribunal hearings in 1995. So, as the Crown was travelling around the country to, as part of their consultation meetings with um, Iwi around the fiscal envelope, he made a counter offer where he presented his nephew's horse blanket on which is um, ascri- uh, ascribed the history that has affected our people. Um, But the funny thing about it is that OTS then took that and framed it and put it up on their wall. And so he found out about that and sent them an invoice. Um, I don't know if he got paid, but but I saw it. It's up in the office, I saw it on Monday earlier this week where I was sitting in on a post-settlement governance entity group uh, meeting. Um, uh, so which is just super-buzzy anyway. Uh, on the right, we have a hieke pāhuka by a weaver called Toitiri Maihi, uh, which was made out of plastic bags and wool. Um, so a hieke being the form of kākahu cloak that is a rain cape, so water is made to kind of run off it. Um, almost like thatching of a roof. So she made this uh, because she was invited to participate in an exhibition in Gisborne which had like a really light and fluffy title, something along the lines of like um, the light shimmering off our water or whatever. But it was around the same time as the Foreshore and Seabed March and her whanau were preparing to participate. And so as almost like a protest or a reaction to that, she wanted to make something that is equal equally light and fluffy, um, as a way of recognising that, you know, actually we've got a lot of work ahead of us, um, and this isn't a light and fluffy time for us, but this is how I'm going to react to your, uh, call for exhibiting, um, and of course, you know, as the environmental effects of plastic go on, it's, it's got an it's gained another meaning in the, uh, decade or so since it was made. Um, I'm not sure if we'll ever have another kākahu join our collection made out of plastic bags in the future. Here again is another one of those serendipitous uh, arrangements. So on the left, of course, is uh, ephemera uh, emblazoned with the Tēnō Ranga Tiratanga logo. And then on the right is a painting made in 1976 by the artist Bucknin, who is of Ngāti Tua, Ngāti Raukawa and Chinese whakapapa. Uh, Bucknin himself was a very influential and um, himself was a rangatira amongst uh, some of the artists that were to come after him. And... This t- work is titled "Ko Te Waka Eko Mai nei. Uh, so made in the year following the Maori Land March. It asks, "What is this waka that is coming towards me?" Um, but obviously, there's a there's a um, relationship here between the colours and also the the shapes and things that are depicted in his work and those depicted in the uh, the Tino Rangatiratanga uh, flag. Nin himself also like many of the other figures that pop up in a lot of these movements, like Tua Iwa and like uh, Joe Hawk, um, was very active in a lot of these protest movements. For Bastion Point Takaparaua, he carved a waharoa that stood at Takaparaua and he also was up at Takaparaua. Eva Rickard um, went along to Motua Gardens. You know, they all supported each other because these these events didn't happen in isolation, we were all victim of the same colonial force
0: um, and the way that we can overthrow that is through solidarity with one another. Uh, another rich area of material culture is the anti-apartheid movement, um, very rich holdings throughout the country and we wanted to show the, uh, the long story. Um, the material culture is starts pretty much in the late fifties, early sixties, with the first uh, no no Maris, no tour movement. Um, the book does do a real deep dive into nineteen eighty one because the material is so strong, uh, and there's great interest, of course, and it's a big part of the school curriculum. So we have celebrated the material culture of of, of the nineteen eighty one Springbok to anti anti tour movement. But we did get a chance to include a few objects from the other point of view. They're very, very few in public collections. Um, these are into public collections, and these are defensive objects worn by protesters to um, deal with the violence. But there are just there's just a few fragments from the other point of view where keep politics out of sport. And um, that wonderful photograph on the right there. We've never found the actual t-shirt, fart. <laughs> Um, and we also, we close that chapter with a bit of material culture from the 1985 uh, protests against the proposal for the All Blacks to go back to South Africa. And that banner is quite wonderful because it was um, threatened with destruction in Matamata Matter Matter in a street protest, and it still bears traces of the eggs that were thrown at it uh, by pro-tour um, people. So it's great... It's a Great object, it's many, it's layered and it um, bears its violence and it sits within the national collection. We have a, a, a fairly short chapter on women in protest, and we tended to focus on um, well, we started with the suffrage petition, of course, one of the greatest pieces of material culture of women's protest in Aotearoa. A beautiful object that's here on display, and um, it's a long story in the book, but we did a deep dive with Stephanie Lashes, help on understanding the materiality of it and how it was made and the quality of the paper, all the this the inks and the pencils and the crayons. So we we did quite a lot of work around just really interrogating it as an object. Because that is a huge part of its story.
1: Oh, and artwork uh, included in this chapter is this by Robin Kahukiwa titled Tefinua Tefinua Ingari Kauri Hituaway. So I interpret this story as being about land whenua but also placenta whenua and the role of wahine and mothers in Fano Māori and uh, the effects of
0: displacement and
1: dislocation.
0: And also very rich material culture around the uh, abortion debates particularly in the 70s and 80s. This is just to quickly show you that we did try to show both points of view. Also, uh, the chapter ends on um, showing the humour of protest through the Women's March objects that we've collected at Te Papa. So we try and collect zeitgeist protest movements. Um, We've got a chapter on the LGBTQI uh, protest. Uh, Again, the material culture starts pretty much in public collections in the 70s. So this, real fast... (coughs) Um.
2: I think two thousand and five. I think I joined a protest down at Parliament. <coughs> Excuse me, and um, walking and marching against Disney Church, who decided to get out of bed that morning and protest about the um, legalising prostitution bill and the civil unions um, act that was coming through. As an erosion of society as they knew it. Um, and one of the things I recall it was where I met Paul, Paul Diamond, actually, was on that protest. He were like, yes, it's another Māori against um, Destiny. Anyway, flash forward a few years, and I was um, doing an exhibition with Steph called Uniformity, and I thought, I'm going to bring in that T-shirt, because it looked to me like those um, black shirts, black shirt fascists. Um, so we acquired this T-shirt by hitting up um, a couple members of Destiny Church, And then I thought I'd also be a cheeky wench. And I sent a letter-headed letter to Bishop Tamaki to ask if I could have one of his suits to talk about the uniform of the the liturgical uniforms of um, church heads. So he sent these in. Now, this was a little bit... He was very happy that we collected it, by the way. Now, this was a little bit of a problem because uh, I'm not a Destiny Church person, but Destiny Church is an important place and has a story to be told about Hāhi Māori, whether we like it or not. Uh, it has a lot of Māori that are in their church, a lot of my in their church. Um, so it's important that it was recorded. So this is this idea of trying to bring in the other side, because this is a very lefty-leaning book. Um, and we wanted to have these stories in here. And just incidentally, the only other time it's been used outside of the uniformity exhibition was when we had that lovely archivist that was with us and um, I think from Hero archives and he wrote a blog about bullying and he used that suit to talk about bullying so there are lots of different ways to interpret these very yucky objects that might bring yucky kōrero with them but the powers in interpretation
0: And we uh, also wanted to include trans-activism and uh, a lot of the objects in the book are about visibility in the streets. You know, you need to actually get your cause out there in the streets while also operating on other fronts like lobbying government and um, all the stuff, all the hard work that happens behind closed doors. But visibility in the streets is a really important part of um, activism. And the posters on the right were just um, in Wellington streets about a year ago. ...by gender minorities, Aotearoa... ...so they're positive manifestations of identity...